0: To the Health and Wellness Show for March 2nd. I'll be your host today, Erica, and I'm joined in our virtual studio from people all over the world. We have Gabby and Doug. Hello. And Tiffany. Hello.
1: And Hi, today, everybody.
0: Today we are going to be connecting the dots. Big Pharma is our topic. So should be an interesting discussion with with lots of information to share, and um, I wanted to just take this opportunity and share with you our disclaimer about how our show today is not intended to be medical advice. The views and options expressed in this episode are not intended to constitute medical advice. If you have questions, we encourage you to do your own research and consult your own healthcare practitioner before you make any medical decisions for yourself or your family. So Big Pharma is our topic today, and I wanted to just start off sharing with you folks a movie that's available for free for the next three days. That uh, we shared on the SOT website, a little trailer. It's called Bot, and um, you can go and watch the movie for free at botmovie.com. And this show, this uh, movie, is about your health and how it's brought to you by Wall Street, the hidden story behind vaccines, big pharma, and food. And this, this movie was produced by a man named Alan Jones, and he was a former investigator for the Office of the Inspector General. It's a great show. We're going to cover a lot of the topics that are in the show on this, today's Blog Talk Radio, so please feel free to check it out and get some more info. So we're going to go right into it. I wanted to have Gabby introduce herself, and share what she wants to discuss today.
2: Yes, I wanted to introduce this subject with um, Marcia Angel. Um, She's an American physician and author, and she was the first woman to serve as Editor-in-Chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. She stepped down as an editor in in the year 2000 after serving two decades as its editor. Uh, she's currently a senior lecturer in the Harvard Medical School at the Global Health and Social Medicine Department. And she has very good material. She has written books. And uh, this is, you know, it will be a, um, like a synopsis and introduction of the subject of big pharma. Basically, in the year 2000, when she stepped down as the editor, she wrote uh, an article saying, Academic Science, is it for sale? And between the responses she got, um, there was this like, no, the current owner is very happy with it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so she was uh, referring for, to give an example of how several clinical trials are performed. She reviewed a clinical trial and she spoke about it. It was about an antidepressant uh, called SertZone. And she explained how the trial had so many financial ties to drug companies that a full disclosure statement was basically as long as the article itself. You know, the disclosure, the full disclosure had to be published on the website because it didn't fit in the magazine. So the lead author of that clinical trial was chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Brown University, and he was paid more than half a million dollars in drug company consulting fees in just one year. And Marcia Angels explains that this situation was hardly unique. So, um, reviewing how the ch- the situation has changed over the years, she says that, um, boundaries between academic medicine, medicine schools, uh, teaching hospitals and faculty and pharmaceutical industry have been dissolving since the 1980s. And practically, practically the boundary is non-existent nowadays despite several efforts. And that's basically because drug companies are focused on developing profitable drugs. And um, drug companies do not aim to educate doctors except as a means to the primary end of selling drugs. Basically, they don't have education budgets. They have marketing budgets from which their educational activities are funded. So basically, yes, that's for starters, you know, in the, you know, right until the mid-1980s, drug companies gave grants to medical centers, and then research usually was initiated by the investigator. That means that sponsors have no part in designing or analyzing studies. They do not claim to own the data, and certainly they do not write the papers or control publication. That all changed very quickly, and since it has changed, you know, corruption of science has—it's uh, really the norm right now. So the industry, the big, um, the pharmaceutical industry acquired enormous power, influence, and money, and in contrast, medical centers and the research shrank, and then they became basically like beggars, beggars, you know, supplicants to, to drug, to drug companies. Nowadays, drug companies have access to highly influential faculty physicians, which are thought leaders and are considered key opinion leaders. And these are people who write textbooks. They write medical journal papers. They also issue practice guidelines, which is treatment recommendations and protocols. They also sit on government uh, associations like the FDA and other government advisory panels. And they have professional societies and speak in meetings that take place literally every single day. And, you know, they are also in charge of continual medical education. And it basically teaches doctors what to prescribe, when to prescribe it. So it's the conflict of interest. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty huge and although there are rules um, like institutional conflict of interest rules which are designed to control these relationships mm, the rules remain highly variable very permissive and loosely or hardly enforced you know yeah. so this is <laughs> this is a problem that we're dealing with and um, just to give one example i'm sure we'll have several during this hour there was a painkiller which belongs to the family of uh, COX2, Cox2, and it's called rofecoxib. The brand name was Vioxx. It was produced, it was manufactured by Merck, by the company Merck, and it was removed from the market in 2005 as it increased heart attacks. Well, how many people say between 88,000 and 140 Thousand heart attacks. It oh. is estimated that sixty thousand people died from this drug. The outrageous thing that there was several meetings to discuss, you know, um, the controversy. And after a meeting, you know, it was decided that the drug outweighed the risks of the heart attack, and it was still allowed to remain in the market. It was only when uh, the New York Times published an article about it. Uh, it was uh, ba- basically discovered that um, of the people who attended the meeting, there were in total 32 panel members. Ten of them had financial ties to manufacturers. So it was then when their votes were excluded and it was then when the drug was finally taken off the market. And um, these type of anti-inflammatory drugs, they remain in the market. There are There is still one remaining. It, it, it has like a red label, basically, can increase heart attack, but it's pretty much prescribed very popularly
0: nowadays.
2: So, yes, this is the situation.
0: <laughs> mm. yeah. Yes, it's it's really a, a frightening state of affairs. I mean, just some of the information that's coming out is... is Big Pharma has one goal, and it's about making profits no matter what it takes. So as we spoke about in previous shows, it's a psychopathic corporation that needs to make profits Mm -hmm. at all costs. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in America, uh, Americans make up 5% of the world population, uh, yet they consume 40% of the drugs that are produced. So that's a huge market. Um, Two countries Mm -hmm. in uh, The U.S. and New Zealand um, are the only countries that allow commercials on TV, and um, the FDA approves these drug commercials in the U.S. Big Pharma spent nearly $5 billion on direct-to-consumer advertising on television. So basically Americans are being brainwashed into believing that drugs are the panacea for all problems physical and emotional
1: well it works for the drug companies because in the u.s and new zealand the only two companies that allow direct-to-consumer marketing the drugs that are advertised sell nine percent more than the drugs that are not so it's a benefit to the drug companies to advertise but it's a detriment to all of us
3: yeah i mean they totally know what they're doing in that respect and if it kind of goes into what uh gabby was saying about how there isn't an education program there's just like a marketing program that's basically it you know these doctors they get their information from uh pharmaceutical reps who aren't doctors they aren't scientists most of them come from some kind of liberal arts background or something like that and that's their contact for what's mm-hmm. um actually um, told to them about the drugs and about the side effects and all the uh the different uh problems that might occur with the drugs and, you know, a lot of these uh, drugs are being dispensed exactly because of this direct-to-consumer marketing. I mean, all those ads say, ask your doctor if this drug is right mm-hmm. for you. So obviously, you know, they, they see all the happy, smiley people in these ads, and the consumer goes to their doctor and says, I want this, give me this. And, you know, to shut mm-hmm. them up, the doctor gives them the drug. You know, and they don't have the information they need whether uh, or not this drug is actually right for them. So it's, it's, a, it's a terrible situation.
0: Yeah, exactly. In in that movie, Bot, they uh, they have a man on there discussing it. And he says that we've gone from looking at things scientifically to looking at things that are best for the industry. Industry is too powerful, you know, and we need to keep our eyes and ears open. What we see today is frightening and everybody needs to wake up. And they even went as Mm -hmm. far as calling, you know, this whole vaccine issue that we've discussed over the last couple of weeks as medical tyranny.
1: Mm -hmm. And even up higher in the pyramid There's no watchdog The FDA is supposed to be the watchdog For these drug companies But um, the the drug companies have to pay a fee To the FDA They provide up to like 60% Of the funding for drug reviews When they submit a new drug to the FDA Um, So a whistleblower said that the FDA is paid by the drug companies outright for new drug approval. So the FDA, they don't do any independent testing. The drug companies do the testing, and then the FDA reviewers come in, and they review the studies, and more often than not, they approve the drugs. So the drug companies are essentially paying the FDA to approve the drugs, and the FDA is supposed to be looking out for our best interests, but they are in bed with the drug companies.
3: Yeah, and it goes pretty deep there, too. There was a recent uh, article um, published February 29th on Slate, um, and it was called Are Your Medications Safe? And it was basically a uh, a journalism um, professor uh, in the States. I'm sorry, I forget what school he was at, but he actually had his students, they spent a semester kind of digging into um, the FDA and why, um, you know, when there's studies that show that there's um, kind of detrimental effects or more often when there's fraud in these studies, Mm -hmm. why that information still ends up being used to um, promote the drug and and, um, still getting published in medical journals and those sorts of things. And it's an incredibly revealing article that basically um, it talks about um, how these studies might be falsified. And even if they are caught by the FDA reviewers, um they still get published and there's no mention of the fraud in their publication um so you know a, a drug might show up on the shelf that says oh yeah this this uh, is a uh, very uh, good for i don't know like adhd or something like that it's very good for um showing that even though the studies that actually found that um were found to be fraudulent so it's it's a, a pretty um corrupt uh situation
1: Yeah, and another thing about the corruption is this uh, revolving door between pharmaceutical companies and the FDA. Like, say that there's an FDA doctor, uh, he works at the FDA to approve drugs, and he stays at his job for a little while, and then he gets a job at a pharmaceutical company. But while he was at the FDA, he was making legislation that was favorable for pharmaceutical companies.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. And
1: the
2: the worst thing also is because most clinical trials that we're talking here is they, they approve, the FDA approves one drug usually is compared against the placebo. And you know, most people out there take at least like those who take prescription drugs, they usually take four, six, even 12 prescription drugs at a time. And no studies really, really prove the safety of the whole combination of the cocktail, you know, or even more. Yeah. Yes. And it's the same issue with vaccines, for example, not only vaccines are not tested against the placebo, but we have a situation right now where kids get like, I don't know what, plus 40 shots or something between their in their whole childhood. And that's never Mm -hmm. been tested. You know, it's the same. It's the same issue.
3: No, and they exactly. totally know how to fudge the numbers there too. It's um uh in in that movie bot, I was watching that last night, and they talked about how um there was one vaccine that they were um testing against a quote unquote placebo. And um <laughs> this vaccine happens to have a lot of uh aluminum in it. Um but then instead of testing the uh the people against an actual placebo, they tested them against an injection of aluminum, the same amount of aluminum that was in the the vaccine. And then they said, "Well look there's no all the all the uh detrimental effects from the vaccine were that were found to be the same in the in the placebo well duh, I mean they have, there's, there's <laughs> aluminum in both of them, so i mean they they know what they're doing they know how to make these little shifts and then uh things in the studies to get the the results that they want to get yeah, that's exactly. Like like
0: fraud. exactly exactly, They even yeah
1: have and
0: a in,
1: that, in that in that." people who work for uh pharmaceutical companies that write these so-called medical studies and then they just have a doctor put his name on it as if he did it.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So they're criminals and they're in charge of our health.
2: Yes, ghostwriting. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, ghostwriting exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and those people who are doing that that writing are more often than not just professional writers. They're not mm-hmm. um actual actual doctors. Um, but then, yeah, they they get a, a doctor to sign off on it as if uh, he or she was the one who wrote it. Unbelievable.
2: Just to give an idea of the money involved with pharmaceutical companies, we have the the numbers for the largest criminal fine in history. In history, 2009, Pfizer, which is the pharmaceutical industry, it's famous for its Viagra. Well, in 2009. They pleaded guilty and agreed to pay 2.3 billion dollars to settle criminal and civil char- and civil charges for marketing uh, drugs for off-label use. And this was in 2009. And the fines, while it's like the largest in history. It's still dwarfed by the profits generated by these activities. You know, for them, it's just like a slap in the you know <laughs> in the face or something. You know, and
1: that's it. Let's move you know, on. You know. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, that's called the cost of doing business for uh, these uh, companies. But Pfizer, they got busted again for um, illegal marketing of Geodon, which is an antipsychotic. They were saying that it was okay for depression, bipolar, anxiety, and dementia, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And they ended up having to pay $301 million for that one. But um, other other drug companies, they've been fined, too, like uh, GlaxoSmithKline. They had to pay $3 billion uh, and pled guilty to three counts of criminal misdemeanors and other civil liabilities uh, for uh, off-label promotion of Paxil and Wellbutrin. Johnson & Johnson, they had to pay $2.2 billion for uh Illegally marketing Risperdal and Eli Lilly, they had to pay 1.4 billion dollars for illegal, illegally marketing Zyprexa and Bristol Myers Squibb. They got fined 515 million dollars for marketing Abilify to children, and Abilify is an antipsychotic as well. So,
0: jeez, yeah, it's that's really a lot of money. Quite frightening. Quite frightening. That is frightening. Well, kind of going on that note here in the u s you know now the whole new market is children drugging children, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um federal and state governments are working in concert with Big Pharma to promote the use of psychiatric drugs in children um, They've developed so called mental health screenings for children and um Basically, if your child is screened and given a diagnosis like a d h d or a d d or in teens, they now have a diagnosis called o d d odd oppositional <laughs> defiant disorder and um yeah basically now nearly nine million children in America are taking prescribed psychiatric meds uh, most <laughs> the drugs but these medicines haven't
1: even been approved for children have they
0: no, exactly
1: no.
0: <laughs> um, most most of the drugs prescribed to treat ADD are Ritalin, Adderall, and concerta they're amphetamine based mm-hmm. stimulants for the central nervous system, so basically the same as cocaine, and they're very addictive with uh, very addictive with severe side effects. And, mm-hmm. and one of the um, the articles that, if you're interested in reading more on this topic that was carried on SOT back in 2013, it's called Protect Your Children from Psychiatric Medication by Stephen Holtz. He talks about how these psychiatric diagnoses of children are purely subjective and the big reason mm-hmm. that pharma companies want to expand the psych drug market Children is because children are more compliant in taking the drugs than adults. In 2008, mm. the sales uh, in the U.S. of psychiatric drugs was 40.3 billion, with a B. Jeez. Over Jeez. nine billion of this was spent on psychiatric drugs just for children.
1: Mm. Wow. So, uh,
0: yeah, it's frightening, you know. Um, also, if for people that may be interested in further reading about this, there's an excellent book written by Robert Whitaker in 2010 called The Anatomy of an Epidemic, Psychiatric Drugs and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America. And then, again, on the medical medicating of our kids, there's another great article that was just carried in 2014. Uh, A New Perspective on ADHD by Dr. Kelly Brogan, and she's a psychiatrist, and she's featured pretty extensively in that BOT uh, documentary. And she was saying from 1994 to 2003, there was an 8,000% increase in children ages 0 to 19 treated for bipolar disorder. And critics are citing drug ads you know, for this for this um, you new, new diagnosis and the the off-labeling prescribing of these medications, they're calling it a bipolar boom. One out of fifty mm. children, four hundred percent rise in the use of antipsychotic medication in teens. And as Tiffany mm. had mentioned, risperdal, created by Johnson and Johnson, is one of those drugs that they give. Uh, oppositional defiant teens. Um, mm-hmm. and basically, it's a, a chemical lobotomy. So it mm. locks the frontal lobe and, uh, consciousness, basically. So, um, uh, what Whitaker was saying in his Anatomy of an Epidemic is that it's basically what makes a person human love, emotions, all these things. Mm-hmm. This, this drug, risperdol is is blocking those things in, in children. So it, it's just frightening in so many ways. Well, well,
1: speaking sorry, of, of you anatomy, nope. <laughs> speaking I have of to anatomy correct. and Risperdal, um, it's not been approved in children, and there's been studies on children. Um, recently, there was an article that came out. I don't know if it's on site yet, but there's this, he's an adult now, but he started taking Risperdal when he was a child. He's, uh, he has autism, and he sued the makers of Risperdal for 2.5 billion dollars because he grew breasts up to size 46 double D. And Risperdal has been found to cause gynecomastia in children. You're so, right about that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Do
3: really you know anything about this operational defiance disorder? Like, I mean, it, it sounds like they're just basically diagnosing rebellious teens, like, you know, a, a normal kind of state of being a teenager, um, and they and they give it a kind of a medical classification so that they can then, you know, diagnose it and, and, and drug these teens.
0: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, there was a, a really good SOT podcast called Good Science, Bad Science, Psychology, and Psychiatry, and um, I actually was a caller and called in, and, and I do have personal experience with um, an, an a teen that was given this oppositional defiant disorder diagnosis, and it's been a very interesting experience because I have never really had much, you know, experience with drugs, or the psychiatric portion of medical services in the United States. So I, I started doing some research on it, and there is a great article on signs called How Teenage Rebellion Has Become a Mental Health Illness by Bruce Levine. And it is truly shocking. I mean, that they would take your teen that that's obviously going through, you know, disruptive behaviors or rebellion And they would give them this Risperdal, you know, uh, an antipsychotic medication. And, you know, when you say no, you know, then they go down the list of all these other things that they want to give to these children, you know. And what happens is once they get this diagnosis, it sticks with them for life. So they become Mm -hmm. lifetime users of these powerful drugs that are tranquilizing, you know. It basically makes kids into zombies.
2: Yeah. I don't know if young.
0: it's
2: a, I don't know if it's a consolation or not, but I have to correct my data because actually it was in 2012 where GlaxoSmithKline would plead a guilty and paid $3 billion to resolve fraud allegations and failure to report safety data. This is considered the largest payment ever made by a drug company. Instead of 2.3 hmm. $2. billion dollars, it was three billion dollars. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> hardly consolation, but I have to say, it, it was for the drugs <clears throat> Paxil and Wellbutrin, which is you know mm-hmm. you know used in psychiatric patients a lot and non-psychiatric patients too.
3: Jeez, wow.
0: Yeah, so. You know, it, again, just trying to get the information out there and trying to share with people the the complete control that this market has. It's very similar to big ag. You know, this whole like uh, Tiffany was saying that the FDA approving you know GMO foods without safety testing, and you see the same things in the the drug companies as mm-hmm. as Gabby had shared.
3: Yeah actually i'm i maybe i could share right now um an article um that was uh run on the daily beast uh, a couple of weeks ago um and it was called it was by um Dan- drake um and it was called big farmers america's zoo mafia and we uh, we covered that on on uh, sot um as well uh, so you can find it on there um but yeah she she basically makes the point that um to look at the, how the doctors have been bought off with like steak dinners and luxury hotels and these reps coming in who are um, basically supermodels um, selling these ideas of drugs isn't really getting to the, the kind of the main problem that's going on here. And she talks about how, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, people saw it, but there was a, uh, a thing that had gone viral where John Oliver was uh, uh, kind of talking about, you know, taking shots at this this whole thing. Um, but she says that the real problem is actually the drugs themselves and makes the point that 70% of Americans are taking pharma drugs, uh, yet they have the worst health c- outcomes in the world. So they're taking the most drugs, but they are also the most sick. Um, and she cites that widespread fraud in the FDA, um, that studies may be uh, falsified, um, and even if they're caught by the FDA, uh, the studies still get published with no, men- with no mention of the fraud um, and are used to back up what's on the labels. Um, so everybody is basically bought from the ground up. Um, a good Mm -hmm. example is in 2004, the cholesterol guidelines were written by doctors. Um, and eight out of nine of them had received money from statin manufacturers. Um, the Harvard doctor is credited with hyping, hyping the ADHD, uh, phenomenon, um, received $1.6 million from stimulant producers. Um, and you know, the, the, she says, uh, I'll just quote her here: prestigious medical journals, the ones who are often defined medical guidelines, um, allow physicians consulting for pharmaceutical con-, con sorry allow physicians consulting for pharmaceutical companies or paid medical writers to extol the virtues of the drugs they are selling um, and doctors are really influenced by these guidelines and opinion pieces that appear in these journals um, much more so than you know like the steak dinners or the deli platters or the the uh the supermodel uh reps um and uh yeah. doctor, dr marsh uh marcia angle or angel i'm not sure how you pronounce her name but the 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 doctor mm-hmm. who uh, gabby was talking about uh, she states that it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines and i mean that's quite telling right there yeah, the fact that you can't you- trust them anymore
2: yeah, you know that even the, the panel, the experts, uh, the panel of, of the cholesterol panel, they don't even agree with each other on the guidelines. You know, these are hmm. the experts making the guidelines. They, they play, you know, uh, the studies are also like, they play a lot with the statistics. We all know this. So just to give an example of the statin industry, which is the low cholesterol drug. They, they popularize terms around relative risk reduction, but there's also absolute risk reduction. For example, if a hundred people are treated with statin medications to offer one person benefit, then the change goes from 2% to 1% heart attack rate is built mm-hmm. as a 50% reduction rather than a 1% improvement, you know. So it's just, you know, they play with numbers. It's actually one person benefits for each for each a hundred, you know. When they say that your heart attack is reduced by fifty percent, it's just only one percent, you know. And this is a drug that has over three hundred adverse health effects, including cancer, you know, and well, heart failure, it's speculated to give as yeah. well.
3: Yeah, and these these so, adverse effects are well documented too. I mean this isn't just people, you know, the odd person trying, you know, shouting out that these these kinds of things are happening. These are in studies. They are published. Like it's 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 well documented that there there are so many adverse side effects from these statin medications. Yet they're still the you know the 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 big pharma's number one sellers.
2: And about the model issue, you know, I have to. My first experience with a pharmaceutical, you know, rep, you know. It was in Italy. It was a woman. She she looked like a a model from the cover of Vogue magazine, only that she was not photoshopped. You know, that's that's the way that she really looked. (laughs) It made all the doctors nervous. You know, I was like, (laughs) and this is like. It's like the kind of people that you know they choose as as representatives of their of their products. Of, of course, you know I don't know yeah. where they get them. You know, former cheerleaders. I don't know, but I remember this woman. I was like, wow, she's not even Photoshop. You know, <laughs> yeah, they just come really
1: in down with loaded down with food, and a few places that I've worked, especially uh, uh, psychiatric wards, uh, they come in and they bring this. Big elaborate lunch, and this was back in the days when I would eat anything, and the food was delicious. And they'd have like <laughs> the the coffee cups and the pins with risperdal or zyprexa on them. And you think that that little stuff doesn't matter, but they work just like commercials. If you see it, it's going to be in the back of your mind somewhere. And when you go to write your prescription, you're going to think of zyprexa. Are you going to think of risperdal?
3: Exactly. You think of that awesome lunch you had yeah (laughs) yeah
0: i mean it's just an excellent example of of big dollars and big industry you know what i mean compromising your health and your basic human rights and everything is being bought and sold it's not about health and well-being it's about money big business
3: yeah totally yeah I i just wanted to get back to the um the article here um by, uh, what was her name, Daniela Drake. Um, She quotes, um, what's his name? Dr. Peter Gottschie, who is the director of the Nordic Cochrane Center. Um, And the the Cochrane Center um, actually does a pretty good service. They try to um, distill down all the different studies that come out because doctors really aren't able to keep up with them at all. Um, uh, There's a a statistic that there's 800,000 studies published per year. And you know, doctors simply don't have the time to go through them and look at them carefully, and that sort of thing. So they do a, they do a pretty good service by actually trying to distill down a lot of these um, these studies. And uh, he, he wrote a book uh, that I think the title just says it all. The book's called Deadly Medicine and Organized Crime: How Big Pharma Has Corrupted Healthcare. Um, and in a recent interview, he uh, he's quoted as saying, uh, "Much of what the drug industry does fulfills the criteria for organized crime in U.S. law." Uh, and they behave in many ways like the mafia does. They corrupt everyone they can corrupt. They have bought every type of person, even including ministers of health in some countries. The drug industry buys the professors first, then the chiefs of departments, then the chief physicians, and so on. They don't buy the junior doctors. Now, the mm-hmm. jun- junior doctors get bought by the reps with their steak dinners and uh, taco platters. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't say that. Sorry, I said that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, and it's, it's all these conflicts of interest too, as we see in this, um, uh, you know, ongoing controversy with the CDC and the whistleblower, uh, Thompson and this whole vaccine issue and, and the debate that's raging about that right now. I mean, in 2005, the total revenue for global vaccine market was $10 billion. And they're projecting mm. that by 2015, um it will be forty one billion dollars, hmm. so there's a lot of money at stake and um Doug, maybe you wanna share about uh the recent article that uh we had an opportunity to put on thought and uh how uh we kind of noticed this trend of this amping up of of uh negativity towards people who choose not to participate or who forgo vaccines for their children based on, you know, concerned, informed information.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's basically exactly that. The, you know, the, um, the, the pharmaceutical companies, um, have controlling interests in the media. Um, and you know, that's not really hidden. You can do a little bit of research and you can find that out. I mean, um, When when it comes to the media, you know, they know who's paying the bills. So obviously their um, editorial line isn't going to go against that, um, or at least not explicitly. You know, they might, you know, throw throw a little crumbs out here and there, but for the most part they take an editorial line that is um, very much in line with who is funding them. So you've got these pharmaceutical companies, and they are putting forth this idea that there is absolutely no danger whatsoever in vaccinating. Um, which is completely untrue. I mean, there are plenty of studies out there in the article we, we, we quoted uh, or sorry we linked to um, a, uh, a a database um, on Green Med Info that documents a hundred different studies that show um, adverse effects from uh, from vaccines. Uh, you know all you have to do is read the package insert on these vaccines and you see um, all the different possible uh, negative effects of them. So the whole party line that's being put forward in the media is just ridiculous. You know, the idea that there is absolutely no danger and all these people who are against vaccination or even people who are questioning vaccination are nutcases, they're conspiracy theorists, um, they're naive. Uh, it's, it's completely, uh, you know, just, it's, it's like, it's basically a whitewashing. Um, so what we noted in the article is that this kind of pro-vaccine hysteria even though they like to say that it's it's a, a you know that the anti-vaxxers are the hysterical ones, it really is a pro-vaccine hysteria, and it's even gotten to the point where um, you know there's there's been bomb threats against uh, people who have been uh, you know who are speaking out against vaccines, uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, um, and another doctor whose name I forget at the moment. Um, we're going to do a tour of, of different uh, cities in Australia. Um, just talking about their research into vaccines and, and uh, how people should be questioning these things um, yeah, and they received bomb threats they ended up actually having to cancel the tour because of, of these bomb threats uh, i mean if that's not hysterical i don't know what is mm-hmm.
2: exactly i have a very i have a very good example on the vaccine you know research uh, it involves again Merck um, famous for its Vioxx drugs that was that we talked with, um, earlier in this hour. Then in 2007, they published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine claiming that Gardasil, which is the vaccine against HPV, you know, virus, is uh, 98% effective at preventing high-grade cervical lesions, you know, precancerous lesions. But when they really looked at the research, you know, they showed that Gardasil was always 17% effective. And uh, its definition of effective rests still on unfounded assumptions. This is a vaccine um that I don't know how to summarize it. <laughs> it's the most dangerous vaccine probably that there is in the market. And uh, that's saying little considering that there's a lot of adverse events with all of them. And uh for example, it is shown that you know, in the um, there's a website that reports uh, adverse events, the the virus system, and it shows that the rate of serious adverse reactions reported on this website was 2.5 times higher than the current age standard standardized death rate from cervical cancer. You know, it has collected over like nearly 30,000 adverse effects. Uh, since Gardasil was in the market in June two thousand and six, and this is just like one example, like over a hundred people have died related to this vaccine, you know, the Gardasil vaccine. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So. And the cra- the crazy thing is, is that it's a completely unnecessary vaccine too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like like you know, it. The other thing too is um, they were talking about it in that bot movie um, that it. What is it? They they. They said that if it was um, effective in, in protecting against HPV, then they would be able to put on the label that it prevents cervical cancer. Um, and mm-hmm. the FDA agreed to that. So they, they've actually marketed it as an anti-cancer vaccine, which in actual fact, it's not. And, you know, the hype has been so strong on this one, um, basically telling, you know, they're marketing it as uh, it's a way for women to empower themselves you know, and, and, you know, stand up for their womanhood and all this kind of thing. And it's so, it's so ridiculous. I mean, it's it's just, it's putting people in, in completely unnecessary harm's way.
1: Yeah, in most cases, HPV clear up on their own anyway. I think 90% of those. Yeah. So, so their campaign is uh, one less. But I keep thinking, well, if you go ahead with the vaccine, you might have one less daughter. Yeah. Instead of one less case of HPV.
3: Yeah, because that's one of the adverse effects is death.
1: Yes.
0: And it's the most well, expensive vaccine on the market as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, again, it's back to this whole profit-driven industry.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well,
1: if we right. want to get in into a little bit of death since we mentioned it, um, In America, there's approximately 106,000 people a year who die from properly prescribed and properly administered drugs. So they're just taking the way their doctor tells them to, and they end up dying anyway. Just from side effects, um, studies show that prescription drugs, they're far more dangerous than illegal recreational drugs. So the only thing really that defines whether a drug is legal or illegal is whether or not big pharma can profit from it.
3: Yeah, exactly. There's,
1: there's more people who are killed by opioids, which is um, pain medications like morphine, codeine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, uh, methadone. So, um, more people are killed by these opioids than heroin and cocaine combined. Huh. And, uh, there's been 3 million deaths related to prescription drugs between 1984 and 2011, and now drug deaths outnumber deaths in traffic accidents. Jesus. So in in the U.K., there's more people that are addicted to uh, painkillers and tranquilizers. Uh, more people are addicted to those than they are addicted to illegal drugs, and the problem with these drugs is uh the painkillers, the opioids, they depress your respiratory function. And sometimes people make the mistake of combining these painkillers with alcohol. Uh Several of these deaths, people just went to sleep and they didn't wake up. Um, hmm. Sometimes people are prescribed uh the wrong dose by their doctors. Like, for example, if you take too much or too little of a blood thinner, like Plavix or Coumadin, uh, which they use to poison rats, by the way, um, that can lead to uncontrolled bleeding or blood clots. Um, mm-hmm. 15,000 people in nursing homes die every year uh, from medications. So mm-hmm. there's a pretty high death toll with big pharma. Yes,
0: yeah. and, and the addiction situation that you mentioned, Tiffany, is really frightening mm-hmm. um, a couple weeks ago, we carried an article on the science page called "Klonopin: The Deadliest Prescription Drug in America," and the uh, website is The Fix. Um, it's a great website for um, drug and addiction information. And uh, the author, Christopher Bryan, he says when it comes to psychiatric drug or prescription drugs, it's hard to beat or top benzodiazepines, also known as benzos, Um, it's been more lethal to millions of Americans than any popular prescription drug. Klonopin's dubious distinction is second only to opioid painkillers like OxyContin, as our uh, nation's most widely abused class of drug. Originally, it was prescribed in the 1950s and 60s for a range of neurological disorders, epilepsy, anxiety disorders, and insomnia. And over time, a loophole in federal drug control laws known as the practice of medicine exemption has permitted psychiatrists and physicians to prescribe the drug for any perceived disorder or symptom imaginable imaginable, from panic attacks to weight control. So again, this idea of Mm -hmm. off-label prescribing, right? Klonopin is most likely to be used during um, drug and alcohol detox. So if people go into a treatment program, they're trying to get off of drugs or alcohol, um, they use this uh, Klonopin to prevent seizures and control symptoms of acute withdrawal. Mm. The, the drug label on Klonopin clearly specifies short-term use for only seven to mm-hmm. ten days. And um, you know, a, a good in this article they talk about the singer Stevie Nicks and her whole experience. Um, she was a cocaine addict. She went into treatment. They gave her this Klonopin, and her life completely fell apart. And you can read her story in that article. It's mm-hmm. also um, uh you know in this class of benzodiazepines they've made the uh top rank as the world's worst and most widely abused drug right uh over um so there's three different classes one of them is alzepra- alprazolam or Xanax mm-hmm. and it counts mm-hmm. for as many as 60% of all hospital admissions for drug addiction Another one was temazepam, sometimes referred to as the date rape drug, and it is the drug that's most related to crimes of violence. And then one last one, and this was really kind of frightening information, is Lorzepram, and it's, it's the commercial name is Ativan, it's an anti-anxiety drug. In 2008, news reports revealed that Ativan was being used by U.S. Customs Service to keep suspected terrorists sedated while deporting them to detention facilities abroad. So this is, I mean, really frightening stuff. And it's approved and it's being given to people kind of willy-nilly, that off-label prescribing and Mm. people's lives are are being severely destroyed in many ways.
1: And of all the patients I've worked with, I don't know any of them who only took it for a short time. They're on it for years, and they're handed out like candy in nursing mm-hmm. homes for people with dementia just to uh, sedate them and keep them calm and make their care easier. So it's really a sad, sad situation. Yeah, and what
0: really was, was frightening about these is you can buy these drugs, they call them feel good drugs without a doctor's signature by simply typing the name into an internet search engine and you'll be presented with dozens of websites, both foreign and domestic, where you can make a purchase. No prescription necessary. Most of the websites accept all major credit cards. Huh.
1: Mm-hmm. convenient.
0: Well, in the
2: marketing, they say, oh, you will never, you know, get addiction from these drugs. It's just like a little aid for troubled times. And then there is literally nobody who can get off these prescription drugs with severe withdrawal symptoms, you know. Most people don't even make it. They just remain in the drug and that's it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Great. So... On that note, we really recommend that bot movie uh, to get some more information, lots of statistics, lots of information to kind of just think about and again, this idea of medical tyranny and where are your choices in these, you know, how do you inform yourself, how do you inform other people? about what, what kind of choices that they can make and options, like we shared in shows previously, you know, diet and exercise and, you know, not looking to big pharma to save you because they do not have your best interests at heart at all.
3: Yeah. I think important on that point, too, also is the the whole idea of, of kind of having empathy for these uh, the people who are in, in kind of in this situation where they do have, um, you know, on on multiple kind of pharmaceutical drugs and stuff. I mean, it's, it's you know, really tempting to kind of look at, you know, shake them and say, what are you doing? This is crazy. you got to get off those things. But I think, um, you know, not everybody wants those, um, you know, those options, you know what I mean? They are looking for the easy answer and, you know, we have to respect their free will to a certain extent and, and really kind of be sort of careful with, you know, what we're recommending. I mean, maybe it's it's a lot better to kind of just, um, you know, use yourself as a model, you know, Um, say, oh, geez, I'm not on any uh, prescription drugs. I actually find that I can control all my symptoms pretty easily with diet. Um, You know, just kind of plant the seeds in the mind and not, not, uh, you know, start beating people over the head with these uh, with these types of ideas. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And as with everything, it's, It's really your choice whether or not you want to take prescription drugs. And I do want to caution people. These drugs are very powerful. They're very strong. They have some serious side effects. They have serious withdrawal effects. So you should not just stop taking a medication without consulting with your doctor. If you do decide that you want to try and get off of a medication, they should be slowly tapered down. You Mm -hmm. shouldn't just stop cold turkey because that can lead to some serious consequences.
3: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah.
2: It reminds me the documentary, The Corporation, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. This documentary which analyzed uh, corporations and how they met uh, psychopathy traits mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, like poor lack of remorse or guilt, pathological lying, you know, and it just reminds me of this, you know, how pharmaceutical industry just needs psychopathic traits.
3: <laughs> yeah, That's no, it. I agree. And I think it's because, you know, so psychopaths are kind of really adept at getting themselves up, you know, up the ladder um, because they don't have the same kind of uh, sense of remorse. They have no issue with kind of screwing people over and doing whatever it takes to kind of get power and I think that that ends up, you know, it filters down. It encourages that kind of um, environment in, in these uh, these big giant corporations like Big Pharma, Big Ag, all these kinds of places. So it's really no wonder that you see um, these kinds of actions being taken. You know, the, the, the corporation itself takes actions that are in and of themselves psychopathic you know they don't have and they aren't informed by conscience at all they don't care you know the whole idea of um you know the cost of doing business like yeah you know we can market this drug even though there's all these side effects and all this, uh, these deaths that happen because we know that in our lawsuits it'll cost us 3 billion while we'll make you know 44 billion off the uh off the drug itself you know it's it's like oh it, that that's okay and i mean that that is completely psychopathic like there is absolutely no conscience there um it, I, actually, from that uh, that same article I was talking about before, about the the medical mafia, um, they stated that in a Vioxx class action suit uh, that was brought against Merck, um, a lot of the company emails ended up being released, um, and they revealed that Merck employees had planned to neutralize and discredit doctors who criticized the drug. Um, one uh, employee was quoted as saying, we may need to seek them out and destroy them where they live. So it just goes mm. to show the, the kind of the, the psychopathic environment that... Uh, that's, that's bred, um, in these, these corporations.
0: It's truly, you know, I, I would have never have guessed that it was like that until as I shared, I experienced it firsthand in, in dealing with the the psychiatry industry and how every day it was a new, it was a new drug. It was a new option, you know, and at one point I made the statement, um, I'm not sure what part of no you don't understand. And, and huh. the, the psychiatrist said to me, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm a drug pusher.
4: And huh. my response
0: was, well, stop pushing drugs. You know? Exactly. And, and I even went as far, and Gabby helped me in this area, as giving information to the psychiatrist about how You know, you can use health and vitamin supplementation, removing gluten, removing dairy to get similar benefits that, that, um, you know, my child didn't need to be put on Risperdal and antipsychotic medication for, you know, a normal behavioral upslip in in my child, you know.
1: Yeah. I've had kind of a similar experience with some of the people that I've worked with. And they see psychiatrists as drug pushers. And really, they're right because what else are they going to do? Psychiatrists, they don't do therapy. Um, You don't sit on the couch and tell them your life story and, you know, get counseling and advice for what you should do about everyday problems or anything like that. You go in, you're in there, like (laughs) maybe 30 minutes for your first visit, and then after that, it's 5, 10, 15 minutes just to see how you're doing with the drug, if you're having any side effects and a lot of times you come out with a new medication so that is what they do it's a pretty sweet job if you can (laughs) handle (laughs) the fact that you're not really helping anybody
0: and it is the largest corporation in the world, right? So again as Mm -hmm. Gabby was saying, back to that idea of of profits over above and beyond anything else psychopathic
3: mm-hmm.
0: so we wanted to take this opportunity to shift just for a moment and share with you folks today Zoya's pet health segment and um we'll, well come back after we, the
1: oh. before we get to the pet, pet health segment uh, I just thought this was funny. I read this today. Um, uh, a drug company has made an antidepressant for dogs. It's called Reconcile.
4: <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't use that. It's,
1: it's basically Prozac for dogs. Um, it's to treat separation anxiety in dogs, and huh. give it to your. You can give it to your cat too to keep your cat from uh, urine marking. Gosh. Just in case, just not to leave the pets out of this whole thing. There's Prozac for your pets.
2: Yeah. A God sign of the time if I ever heard one.
3: Yeah. I actually have a depressed goldfish. Do you think it would work on him too? Maybe. Watch him for suicidal
1: ideology though. <laughs> oh God, this is so sad. <laughs>
0: oh, yes. So um, we'll take this opportunity, transition, and play the um, joyous piece.
4: Hello, and welcome to the Natural Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Last week, we talked a bit about what you could do for your pets if there was an emergency and you couldn't take them to the veterinarian as soon as possible. Hopefully this information was useful for you, especially since it's probable that not all of the mentioned substances can be found in North America or Europe, like potassium permanganate solution, or maybe they can be found under a different name or are used for a different purpose. As for techniques like treatment of burns that was mentioned in a previous show, or giving your dog a sweet tea, they they, they may also sound strange to some people, or even veterinarians, so just to uh, reiterate that all, of the, all the advice that was offered was for emergency cases plus an ability to reach veterinarian quickly enough. You could say that all the advice is useful in case of the so-called field conditions. But if you have the ability to reach veterinarian, uh, always better to do this first. Okay, so today we are going to finish talking about emergency cases and I'm going to give you a list of necessary items you should have in your special My Pets emergency bag or box. You will notice that many of those items can be used on humans too. So there is a double good reason to stock on those supplies. And they are usually not particularly expensive. And just for the sake of clarity, I made a research and look for substances that are available both in North America and Europe. So, uh, here it goes. Uh, one first item that you should have uh, in your first aid kit is a muzzle or a collar or a leash Uh, it's important i understand that maybe your pet may be stressed maybe in in, uh, bad condition and he is already frightened so so basically putting a muzzle may seem as as something cruel but you must understand that it's not only uh, for their protection it's also to protect the humans handling and caring for the animal Uh, animals are usually some animals become aggressive when they are afraid and in pain so you should keep that in mind Uh, you should keep a pair of tweezers for splinter or tick removal nail trimmer or clipper a pair of blunt tipped scissors to trim hair away from a wound or to clip out foreign material caught in your pet's fur. Uh, In North America, or maybe in Europe, uh, you can find, uh, instead of iodine solution, maybe you can find pre-soaked pads to clean out uh, cuts, wounds, or abrasions, and bottled water. Uh, The wound should be flushed with water after using pre-soaked pads. Uh, Instead of uh, permanganate solution, you can uh, find and use uh, saline solution, saline solution. Regular human contact lenses uh, saline uh, drops can be used to flush out dirt sand or other irritants from your pet's eye. It can also be used to flush away debris from a cut or scrape. Uh, antibiotic ointment to apply to a wound after it has been cleaned with iodine solution and flushed with water to prevent uh, accumulation of all kinds of harmful, potentially harmful microorganisms. There are all kinds of gel, uh, lubricating gel, uh, for example, around your pet's eye um, if you need to use soap or iodine solution to clean a wound close to the eyes. Uh, You can uh, keep uh, in the box, in the emergency box, sterile non-stick pads to cover a wound before bandaging other bandage material either elastic bandages or gauze, to hold a non-stick pad in place over a wound. Um, And you can keep hydrogen peroxide. Uh, It's a 3% solution. Now, there is a controversy regarding hydrogen peroxide and using it to clean a wound. Uh, Some veterinarians say that it actually slows the healing process. I made my research and still it's not... um, um, Basically, uh, I can tell you for sure, 100%, who is uh, correct here, uh, because some sources say that uh, it doesn't affect uh, healing process in any way, but some, like uh, Karen, uh, like uh, Dr. Karen Becker, says that it does for the healing process. So maybe it does, but it is useful uh, to, for example, remove blood uh, or all kinds of uh, clotted. And dirty and dry, uh, sticky stuff uh, on the wound, so so you can use that to basically to make it a bit uh, a bit a moistish. Uh, and also hydrogen peroxide uh, can induce vomiting, but use it only after you talk to your veterinarian and he said that it's okay to do it because each case is. Uh, is uh, is specific, uh, so so you always need to check this uh, beforehand. Another item is a clean cotton towel that can serve multiple purposes, uh, from a pressure bandage to a blanket, uh, to a sling to lift a larger pet that is isn't able to walk. And uh, you can also have flashlight. Uh, Sometimes a bright light source can help you more readily identify the thorn in your pet's paw. All the tiny tick in between her toes, uh, and also you can use it maybe to check uh, the eye, the ears. So so basically, it's useful item also for humans to have it in emergency kit. Other items you may include cotton balls and swats, uh, and also uh, Benadryl for allergic reactions a back rescue remedy for stress, homeopathic aconitum for shock, and you can also use a thermometer. For example, if you can't reach the veterinarian, but you can talk to him or her over the phone, so you can basically take a temperature by yourself, it's using a rectal check of the temperature, body temperature, and then tell them over the phone the results. Now, make sure to keep your kit in an easily accessible location and let everyone in the family know where it is. If you're traveling with your pet, it's a good idea to either either bring the kit along or prepare a second kit uh, for the car. And remember that administering first aid to a sick or injured pet is just the first step, And uh, you still need to get to the veterinarian as soon as possible. Now, this is it. For this part, and uh, this is it for about the emergencies. But now let's talk about a different but no less important topic, which is also related to the general topic of today's show. A week ago, I received a question from the listener. The question was about an obese, 12 years old little dog, which was diagnosed, uh, which was just diagnosed with cushing disease, and prescribed two specific drugs that are very expensive. The cost is $200 a month for the rest of dog's life. And the listener wanted to know if she should do the treatment, especially since the vet also told her that she should choose not to do the treatment, she could choose not to do the treatment and just let things progress as they are. Well, since I'm not a doctor yet, I can't really give a definite answer. But what I know about drugs that are prescribed in case of Cushing disease which is a condition that has several reasons and is characterized by an excess of the steroid hormone cortisol in the blood, that most of them have serious side effects. In fact, these drugs are not for treating the disease but for maintenance only. It helps to control the symptoms. That's why they should be taken for the rest of dog's life. It's exactly like chemotherapy for life. It's true that newer drugs are better when it comes to side effects, but they are also more expensive. So in the end, it doesn't matter how you look at it. There is loss of suffering in any of these cases. And that's what I wanted to talk about. About the grip Big Pharma has on veterinary science and how often veterinary students are being taught not to think, but instead are asked to memorize all the necessary treatment protocols and their dosage. Let's take this poor little obese dog with Cushing as an example to demonstrate the point. In most affected dogs with Cushing, the cause is a small benign pituitary tumor. It happens mostly with middle-aged or older dogs, and there are several breeds that have a predisposition to the development of this kind of tumor. Okay, so if it's a tumor, then what? It's like the universe is Russian Roulette? Uh, some dogs lose or some dogs win? Wrong predisposition to any disease including development cancer a uh, development of cancer means just that a possibility meaning that if there won't be any contributing factors your dogs can live happily all their lives without developing anything of this kind and contributing factors can be starting from stress bad diet like feeding your dog dry food and giving him all kinds of medications especially steroids and uh, here we come to the biggest conundrum, both of veterinary medicine and human one. You see, despite me studying in a low-budget university and not having access to super advanced and cool veterinary equipment, uh, they were able to give a couple of the most important principles of being a veterinarian. Beside the principle of doing no harm, they also told us that a good veterinarian is a veterinarian with nothing to do. meaning the Disease prevention is much more important than treating the disease. And if this is being kept in mind, then it's easy to see why proper upkeep or proper living conditions and species-appropriate diet are all the animal needs to have a good and long life. And what is left are emergency situations, including emergency surgery in case of accidents. So both in human medicine and in veterinary one, there is this absurd situation where more and more fancy and advanced techniques and drugs are being developed, new treatment protocols, etc. Better diagnosis techniques, better everything. Right right now in US and Europe, there are all kinds of veterinary clinics that can give your pet the best diagnosis and treatment in the world. Veterinarians are very proud of their profession and rightly so. But then in many cases, they are being misguided or taught to believe and accept things that are very wrong, just like in human uh, medicine. Okay, so this is lit- so this little obese dog's owner still has to decide if she's willing to pay two hundred dollars a month. This may ease not only her dog's symptoms but also her conscience that she did something for her little baby. But then, who knows if she if she would uh, fed her dog with species appropriate diet uh, since childhood. If she was told by her veterinarian years ago that diet and stress have major effect on the hormonal system, maybe she would make sure to feed her dog properly and give him stress-free environment as as much as possible. But then, what interest Big Pharma and other similar greed monkeys have in educating the public? No interest at all. And that's why both medical and veterinary fields are in constant state of a so-called advancement, while it is really an illusion and we are just getting further and further away, from what is real and natural, uh, I think that's enough for today. And thank you for listening. Have a great day.
0: Well, that was very helpful segment from Zoya, and she was right on with her statement about the the same principles apply as they do in humans, that we we are in charge of our health and wellness. And while we have this freedom to choose and educate ourselves, I think it's very important that we use all tools necessary and do the research and find the information and make decisions for ourselves and our family that are informed and not get caught up in all the hysteria and hype through the media and all the big pharma, you know, profiting and uh manipulation of information. So I wanted to leave it to Doug for a little bit of closing before we uh take the opportunity to give our recipe for the day.
3: Yeah, um well, actually you just covered a lot of what I was going to say Erica but <laughs> yeah I was I was just going to say that I think um you know with with this whole discussion on big pharma and, and and we've been pointing out all these negatives on it and stuff like that, um, you know I think it really is at the end of the day very important for individuals to educate themselves. Um, you know your doctor it's important to know that your doctor is coming from a specific point of view um, and that they have a specific interest um, and I think that it, it's very easy to kind of get caught up in that because they are an authority figure they 've got that white lab coat on, and we're kind of programmed to. Think that they're right about everything but it is up to the individual to kind of empower themselves um, to look past that kind of stuff to do the research look into the drug that's being recommended look at what the side effects are see if there are any alternatives especially when it comes to nutrition and diet and uh, you know some alternative uh, medications like uh, homeopathy or herbalism or, or something along those lines maybe think about seeing an alternative practitioner you know there are options out there even though it's, it's made to seem like there aren't. Um, so, yeah, do the research, read the signs, uh, health and wellness section. There's lots of great articles in there. Um, and yeah, empower yourself as far as health is concerned.
0: I agree. So we're going to have our recipe for today. It's a little uplifter, a nice little sweet treat. It's avocado chocolate mousse. And mm. yes, this is safe for a keto diet, uh, avocados, you know, nice, high and saturated fat. So for this avocado chocolate mousse, um, start with four avocados and they can be a little bit browned or bruised. That's okay. Um, you have a te- teaspoon, rounded teaspoon of stevia or if you like xylitol or erythritol, a tablespoon of vanilla extract. One cup of organic coca or carob powder, if you like that. Um, one fourth cup of oil, preferably like a coconut oil, but if need be, you can use an olive oil or even a grape seed oil. And then if you like the taste of coconut, you can add a fourth a cup of coconut milk. And the recipe is super easy. You just scoop out the avocados, chop them into small pieces, and put everything in a blender or a food processor or even a a magic bullet or a hand mixer. Mix them all together until they're a creamy consistency, and it will turn a little bit brownish because of the cocoa powder, and it takes about 10 minutes to make. So that's our Mm -hmm. recipe for today. Try it out and see Mm -hmm. how you like it. Great. And so I think... I think if nobody else has anything left to add, if obviously this is a very, you know, intense information, lots of discussion to be brought up, and we didn't have a chance to cover all aspects of it, but um, I'm sure we'll come back to Big Pharma and shows coming up in the future. So, thank you all for listening, and uh, please visit the Signs of Times website, and uh Come on back again to SOT Blog Talk Radio. Yeah.
1: Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.